0: Well, welcome to Brettonomics, a podcast series brought to you by the Bretton Woods Committee. I'm Nancy Jacqueline, and I'll be hosting this podcast, which is a series on the institutional framework for the global economy that was started at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. In our first podcast, that was our last, our previous one, we talked about the interwar history, the collapse of the gold standard and a mutually destructive period after the Great Depression, of competitive exchange rate depreciations and trade restrictions. It was sort of a zero-sum game of international economic policy. Negotiators at Bretton Woods were anxious to create a cooperative framework for the international monetary system to benefit mutual growth and global prosperity. Today, we're gonna talk about one of the main institutions created at Bretton Woods, and that's the International Monetary Fund. We'll discuss today its core mission, which is to promote a, stability, a stable and well-functioning international monetary system. We'll talk about the system as it was first created, the so-called par value system, its collapse and then its replacement in 1978 with more flexible regime, uh, and that is still in place today. I'm delighted to have as my guest Ted Truman, who is an ideal person to talk about these issues. Uh, Ted was at the Federal Reserve Board in the 1970s when the new system, when, while the old system was collapsing and the new system was put in place. I got to know Ted at that time when I was at the US Treasury. Ted subsequently became head of the International Division at the Federal Reserve Board. He later served as an assistant secretary in the Carter administration and was brought back to help out during the Obama administration as well. Ted's been affiliated with the Peterson Institute for International Economics and has taught at a number of universities and is currently teaching at Harvard. He's also written extensively in the area of international monetary affairs and related issues. So welcome, Ted. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, I wonder if you could start by telling us, in kind of simple terms, what the rules of the road were for the international monetary system designed at Bretton Woods and the expected advantages of that system to exchange relations.
1: First, let me say it's a great pleasure to be collaborating with you again, Nancy. Uh, I will say it was the Clinton administration rather than oh, Carter, I'm, Carter, I'm Carter, sorry, the sorry, Carter, Carter, administration. <laughs> but, uh, but, we, you know, I'm not quite that old. I will know I was involved in that period. Uh, so to answer your question, the rules. Uh, I think it's the easiest way to think about the rules was that they were embodied in the in the purposes of the International Monetary Fund. Uh, the first article. Uh, you may remember that the manager Director, Michelle Camdessou. Uh, carried a little ca- a card in his pocket in which he would bring this out and say, these are the purposes and this is why we have to do this. And so, as you just said, the first purpose was to create an institution of international monetary cooperation to uh, rather, to replace the lack of cooperation during the pre-war period. Second was to promote growth of trade. Third was to avoid the kind of competitive depreciations that we had during the, uh, the 1930s and that exacerbated the the uh, depression. And then in addition, the fund had the capacity to make loans to countries to increase their confidence in working through the system, uh, short-term loans, and to encourage them in their adoption of adjustment policies to adopt the kind of policies that had the least damage to other countries participating in the currency system. So that was the overall framework of the monetary system. And the par value system that you mentioned was embedded in that system. Uh, the par value system consisted of, uh, on the one hand, countries paid their currencies, uh, set their par values in terms of the dollar, and the dollar in term, set its par value in terms of a fixed amount of gold at a fixed price of $35 an ounce. And that created this gold exchange standard, as it was then called now. That was the Bretton Woods exchange rate system, which was embedded in the Bretton Woods monetary system. And so one was a a piece of the other.
0: Okay. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about um, how the IMF, uh, just, just kind of staying on those points on the par value system, some of the principles that the IMF adopted to implement the par value system in terms of... Particular exchange rate uh, obligations of, of members so in the, terms so of what they could do and they couldn't do. To-
1: well, the the members were obligated to keep their their currencies uh, it's when they traded the market within a very narrow, very narrow margin of one and a half percent. In addition, they were not supposed to change their part of values without the permission of the International Monetary Fund. That was a, Ended up being a a uh, provision that was uh, honored in the breach uh, but the basic point is that the International Monetary Fund collectively was to monitor the the uh, implementation of the operation of the system as a whole
0: and the the um, uh, there were specific obligations that you couldn't manipulate your currency right, right? Uh, and that you really couldn't couldn't engage in kind of the competitive depreciation so competitive depreciation right.
1: is one of the is the one of as i mentioned earlier yeah. one of the core purposes of the fund, So, to protect to prevent countries from falling uh, prevent countries from com- competitively depreciating and unilaterally depreciating so the point was that if you have a cooperative institution the institution as a whole would mal- monitor in some sense the uh, collective membership and the staff on the, the uh, Leadership and staff of the fund would monitor how countries behaved uh, and whether they meet, met their obligations.
0: And then, so we now have a, a, a system in place. Um, what turned out to be its vulnerabilities uh, of the system over time?
1: So there were several vulnerabilities. A sort of core vulnerability, which is a little obscure thing about it from this point in time, is that there was a... Uh, the, Global economy was growing and grew very rapidly after World War II, Uh, and there was an increased uh, demand for international reserves. Uh, The international principal international reserve was gold, Uh, but the demand for gold from both the public sector and the private sector was less than the supply of gold of gold, which was coming from dug dug up from underground, Uh, and that and the and in the private sector, the price of gold was also pegged at $35 an ounce. Uh, so, uh, so what we found was that the countries, and importantly in the United States, which had most of the gold in the post-war period, initial post-war period, uh, had to supply the gold to the private uh, private sector and some, to some extent to other countries. Uh, and there was this, uh, and the gold stack was coming down. U.S. gold stock was coming down. Uh, and there was a risk that it get to the point at which there would be a run on on that gold stock, and you would have a collapse of the system. So that was the first and most important uh, core problem of the system. Uh, and on the other hand, you had a situ- situation in which the United States uh, was had a large uh, private capital outflow to other countries uh, that normally would be counterpo- counter counter uh, balanced by increase in its trade or current account deficit excuse me, trader current account surplus. That didn't happen. Uh, so other countries, to defend their par values, had to buy up the dollars, and the dollar, oh, those official dollar holdings, again, became a big claim, potential claim, against the, against the, uh, the U.S. gold stock. Uh, and that was, again, created this risk of a run on the gold stock. And then the system as a whole was and as it operated uh, in practice, maybe not the way it was intended, was uh, rather rigid, uh, and uh, it worked in an asymmetrical way in the sense that countries that had current account deficits, uh, they would run out of reserves, and they would be forced to devalue. Countries that had current account sur- surpluses, running surpluses, uh, didn't have the same pressures, so it was very asymmetrical. If you were in debt, you had to devalue. If you were in surplus, you didn't have to appreciate your currency. Uh, and uh, and increasingly, the United States was in the former category. Uh, but we couldn't do very much about it uh, because the system was pegged to gold. If we just raised the price of gold, raised our peg in terms of gold, since all other countries were pegged to the dollar, they would all... They would all move with us, and we wouldn't achieve anything, any change in the exchange rate.
0: So then, uh, the system was in place for a while. What was done to to try to hold it together and and uh, negotiate some fixes, and and how was it done? Through what institutions and political groupings was so this was there basic? Effort to
1: excuse me, hold this, it together. This basic problem was recognized quite early. Uh, actually it was associated with a famous economist by the name of Bob Triffin. Uh, and as early as the advent of the John F. Kennedy administration in 1960, 61, they realized that they had this potential, the demand for U.S. gold uh, that would exceed our capacity to meet, to meet the supply. And so increasingly there were a number of official and private groups that would meet to try to figure out what to do about it. The private groups tended to to stress thinking about a more flexible exchange rate system. The public grou- groups uh, tended to focus on trying to make fixes to the system, existing system. And the principal group uh, that developed was called the, the Group of Ten, which was the ten major uh, industrial uh, countries, basically eight European countries, the United States, Canada, and and Japan. Now, if you're counting closely, you'll find out that that adds up to 11 <laughs> because Switzerland was an adjunct member, but it was a European country. Uh, and they met at the central bank governors, central bank, governors, and finance ministries and, and deputies, and they discussed various, various problems uh, and fixes. And the first fix came as early as 1961, when the central bankers set up a so-called gold pool, so they collectively would supply the gold to the London gold market to keep the price at $35 an ounce, draining the gold from the system, uh, from official hands, largely from the, uh, the U.S. official hands. And then the second point was that there was a concern that U.S balance of payments position would end up meaning that we would have to borrow from the fund, but the fund didn't have enough reserves uh, to lend to us. So they created something called the General Arrangements to Borrow, uh, which actually meant the General Arrangements to Lend of some certain countries to the IMF in, in certain circumstances uh, involving the activities of this, t- these ten uh, these 10 countries. Um, that was done in 1972, uh, and then uh, later in the decade in 1978, 68, excuse me, I meant 62 there earlier, 68, um, we, they created, a, there was pressure on the gold market, and uh, they created what was called a two-tier gold market, so they separated the official gold market from the private gold market, and the officials were always supposed to trade gold at $35 an ounce and the private market could trade gold at somewhat higher price. Uh, so we had this two-tier gold market uh, that, got it, that was instituted in 1968. And, and then in, uh, in, during this period, they were discussing various ways to augment the reserves of the system. And they ultimately came up with what was called <clears throat> the special drawing right, a rather arcane invention. Uh, but it, what special drawing rights are is something that the IMF can allocate to its members in proportion to their quotas. And that allows the members to use these to augment, they essentially augment their reserves and they can use these to, as they use the other reserves to meet balance of payments problems. And that agreement was reached in 1969. And right away they decided to issue a small amount of, uh, SDRs in 1970, 71 and 72, but basically all this, Apparatus, if you want to put it that way, was too little and too late.
0: So then, <laughs> having worked hard to save the system, how ultimately was the par value system abandoned?
1: So again, as in the 1960s, you had a sort of slow motion process. Uh, some people start about uh, think, date the date the deterioration of the system to 1968 in the two dollar two tier gold system uh but increasingly it became obvious that this was not going to sustain be sustainable for a long time and in particular the u.s authorities realized that they were lo- likely to face a run on a on the on the dollar or on their gold stock uh probably at an in, a, in, a, in, a, in a inconvenient time like a presidential election uh so that uh, so president Nixon and his uh, colleagues uh, decided to uh suspend our sale of gold to other official holders of dollars and in in august of 1971 and we uh and we uh also imposed a 10 percent tariff surcharge on other countries uh to help induce them to appreciate their currency so this was actually a big threat to the system as a whole so you bought back unilateral exchange rate changes you bought back trade Uh, trade uh, measures, Uh, it almost looked like you were going back to the 1930s. Uh, The good news is that that didn't happen Uh, and in a very short period of time, several months, uh, they negotiated the G10, the same group uh, negotiated a new set of par values among their currencies and that agreement was signed in December of 1971 at the Smithsonian Institute here in, in Washington, uh, that, um, and that, that,
0: and that at least it wasn't that it was just the U S that was supposed to depreciate. We finally try, got some though. of the surplus countries to adjust their currencies as well.
1: Right. So you had, you had, we actually did in the end raise the price of gold slightly to 35, $38 an ounce and a bunch of other currencies therefore raised their, their, their exchange rate, uh, uh, appreciated their exchange rate, lowered the price of dollar, which is always very complicated. Uh, appreciation means what appreciation and depreciation means. And uh, so, on balance, the dollar was depreciated by uh, about 8%. Um, and uh, uh, the problem was the next problem was it wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, they made pr- pretty Clear by uh, early uh, 1973 that it wasn't enough, and uh, uh, Secretary Schultz sent uh, Paul Volcker uh, around the world to negotiate a second. Yeah, that's was under of the treasury when he was under secretary yeah. of the treasury, uh, and he negotiated a second evaluation of the dollar, which was by ten, roughly 10 percent uh, in February of 1973. Uh and uh that second evaluation in some sense was even less effective than the first one because it just didn't hold. Uh the par the, the the exchange rates just the uh, par values didn't hold. Um and by early March the other major countries closed down their markets. Uh they were taking in too many dollars uh and they closed down their markets and they had a sequence of meetings in Paris. Uh, and essentially, as, uh, as Paul Volcker used the phrase, the uh, officials capitulated to the market uh, by saying, well, we're gonna have to let our currencies float against, uh, float against each other. That was not completely acceptable to all other countries. Um, uh, in particular, we had established, uh, I say we, because I was, as you said, somewhat involved, uh, On the edges at this time, we had we had established something called the Committee of Twenty. So, what is the Committee of Twenty? Well, first of all, there are twenty members.
0: As opposed to as opposed as opposed to the 10, G-10, right. and
1: ten, and each and each member represented was a representative of its uh, constituency in the International Monetary Fund, where there were twenty seats on the executive board of the International Monetary Fund. And so now you had a global system. So the new the reformed international monetary system was supposed to be negotiated on a more universal basis than was done in the previous decade and the, the G10 called the shots. Uh, and uh, in particular, the developing countries didn't like this move to flexible exchange rates by the major currencies. So they actually adopted a formula that was supposed to prevail in the reform system, which was called: we will have stable but adjustable, stable but adjustable par values, with provision for floating in particular situations. The particular situation was the situation at that time, uh, and uh, 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 and uh, however, the reform of the entire system was never fully agreed. Uh, and the some Committee of 20, the C20, wound up its uh, its, op- its operations in the, the summer of 1974. Uh, and there we were. But floating was still illegal. Right. In the sense that it was, there were no, I say illegal, it, it, it really, there was no since it was not provided for in the system, there were no rules under which the floating right. exchange rates operate. So once you floated your exchange rate, you could you could appreciate it, you could depreciate right. it, so and so on. There were no controls or, in private, I mean no so then, obligations associated. So
0: then, what was the process to finally reach an agreement to replace the old par value regime?
1: What happened? So that was another one of these uh, projected uh, protracted processes. Uh, uh, Maybe it wasn't so projected, pro- projected, but so as I said, the C-20 didn't finish the job. Right, And the principal protagonists at that point were the United States who had, uh, the U.S. officials had decided that floating as such as it was, was preferable to going back to a system which constrained the United States uh, uh, too much. Uh, especially since the uh, Europeans in particular didn't want to accept constraints on their side. So, uh, so And the, and the leading con- protagonists on the other side were the French. Uh, and they said, we need to go back to the par value system. And we said, you know, we can't really do that. We really have to, we could I need mean, some sort of way, but we need to move forward with the system so it can't just be completely in limbo. And... Uh, Edwin H. Uh, Yo, the third, uh, became uh, became the Undersecretary of the Treasury, and he grabbed hold of this issue, and conducted a series of very uh, intense negotiations with his counterpart in France, who was Jacques de Rozier, who later became Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, and they worked out a framework for. Uh, a revision of the article of, in the International Monetary Fund's article's agreement that dealt with exchange rate obligations. It's called Article 4. And they worked out this agreement. And then Jacques uh, uh, Del Rosier's uh, boss, who was Giscard d'Estaing, who was the president of France at that time, had this brilliant idea of having a big summit at the uh, Castle at Rombrié, France, uh and his counterpart the german counterpart was uh, was uh, helmut schmidt they both have previously been finance ministers, so they had engaged in this process during all so they liked the idea it was
0: part of, of their DNA, uh, dna part of their <laughs> dna
1: to uh, meet frequently and settle these things and get involved in the economic issues and so forth and so on so they held the first international uh, economic summit of six countries uh another f- Four were the European countries, uh, uh, excuse me, three European countries and Japan uh, at Rambouillet, and they agreed to the basis basis of this agreement uh, that had been reached, text that had been uh, agreed between Yo and, uh, and De Rosier, uh, which was then passed to the International Monetary Fund, and it worked it in, out into a real text. Uh, and then there was a big a meeting at uh, in uh, Jamaica, uh, what was then called the interim committee uh, in January 1976 that approved this whole package, including this exchange rate provision article. Uh, but the fine, final package was not uh, did not become effective until 1978 uh, when, uh, when everybody had a, enough people, countries had a, uh, so in some sense you had 10 years. Yeah. Between the two-tier gold system, which sort of the beginning of the end, and the formal uh, reinstatement uh, in a legal sense of the of a new exchange rate system, uh, the floating exchange rate system.
0: Yeah. And oh, I, I forgot
1: to say the, one important thing. Yeah. Uh, maybe that comes. The important thing was the it was it was a compromise, which we can get to later.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the interim committee. I guess we should also say that um, the G6 did become the G7 about a year or so later when the U.S. wanted a few more uh, friends around, uh, uh, English speakers, and uh, and so when the U.S. Uh, uh, hosted a summit in Dorado Beach, uh, Puerto Rico a year after Rambouillet. Uh, they said, well, we want an English speaker. And so they asked uh, Pierre Trudeau, which I thought was rather ironic. Uh, but since he represented Canada, which was largely an English-speaking country, uh, they were added to the, the sort of inner circle. Yes. So now let's talk about the interim committee, which was sort of the, the uh, created at the International Monetary Fund, which was instrumental in, in, in the mechanics of reaching agreement.
1: So the interim committee was the successor body to the C-20, so it had the same structure, uh, one uh, representative from each of the constitu- IMF uh, executive board constituencies, which was 20 at that time. Uh, and then why was it called the interim committee? Well, because the revised articles agreement called for something called the council, which was going to be a formal body of, at the ministerial level uh that would exist between the executive board of the fund and the governing board of the fund which is all the governors of so the members of the fund um, and it was interim for an extended period of time in fact the council has never has never been created so about 20 years ago uh they decided to change its name to something more meaningful slightly more meaningful so now it's called the internet uh, internet International Monetary and Financial Committee, IMFC. In principle, it is only advisory. Uh, this has to do with bureaucratic politics. In, in, in principle, it's only advisory, but in fact, big issues go to the interim committee and they say yes or no, or they rubber stamp, or they finally agree to a final agreement on a particular issue to allow the fund or some other areas to go forward with a particular initiative and proposal
0: yeah i mean essentially just to sort of back up a little on um on the organization of the imf's work you have a you have a permanent staff you have a managing director and several deputy managing directors that oversee the day-to-day work of the institution and the managing director chairs the executive board the executive directors represent uh, the members of the fund and at least at the u.s it's sort of the equivalent of an assistant secretary level position Uh, the U.S. executive director at the fund, and then um, there are the governors, which are the finance ministers typically, and and generally the alternate governor is the uh, head of the central bank of the country's concern. And and that's a group that represents, um, it's not limited to 20, it's each and every country has their governor. So the annual meetings of governors are really kind of a series of speeches and, and voting on, on uh, kind of pro forma things. And, um, and, and so what they wanted was sort of, as you said, a policy guidance operational group that would kind of give direction to the, to the fund and to the, the executive board on what they should do. So we had the interim committee and then we now have the IMFC. So now tell us about the new rules of the road that were created in the in the system that was adopted in 1978.
1: So before we do that, we ought yeah. to tell the audience that you were the US. executive director at the International Monetary Fund, which is one of the reasons why you know so much about it, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it is and, a-
0: and why I really enjoy doing this <laughs> podcast series.
1: <laughs> so the new rules uh, basically had two parts. the new article four, uh, had two parts one dealing with the exchange rate system and one dealing with other aspects. And the, the exchange rate system uh, had the nice phrase in it I always thought we will the, the commitment to create a stable system of exchange rates not necessarily stable exchange rates but a stable system of exchange rate. this is one of the illustration of how, of how we can play around with words to so they can mean different things to different people. And you
0: can get agreement.
1: You and you can right? get agreement. Well, that's how you That's how it. You, you get, get agreement. agreement. <laughs> At least some things done certainly afterwards. But yeah. And then, so it, it contained a standard, standard, the standard the provisions. Countries should avoid uh, exchange rate manipulation. Uh, uh, and uh, So that goes back to essentially where you were in the, in the purposes. Uh, it legitimized floating it actually prevent but made a provision that they could return to poor values with an 85 percent vote uh, that was a it was a uh, part of the compromise with the Franks so that people wanted to go countries wanted to go back to that the poor values we could there could be done in a structured way and it empowered the fund to create uh, to exercise what was called at the time and still was called firm surveillance over uh, over the uh, over this operation of the exchange rate system and to that end uh it, are, it called for the creation of certain principles that would guide this firm surveillance uh one of them was to the countries should intervene but only as necessary to counter disorder market conditions uh, uh that countries should respect the interests of other countries when they did so uh and it created a basis for the review of Members from exchange rate policies, which for at least the major countries occurs at least once a year. Uh, that's part, part one, which is the exchange rate part. And then it had a, was also linked to economic policies. Uh, and their countries committed to, on the one hand, orderly growth, on the other hand, reasonable price stability. Uh, and that provided the basis for also assignment reuse as well of countries' policies. Uh, in the context of the workings of the international monetary and financial system, uh, so, so it
0: was. So it was really broader when you look at the, the members' obligations under the original system that really related to exchange rate arrangements, exchange arrangements, and this broader system not only said you've got specific obligations in terms of your exchange rates, but you also have some broader undertakings in terms of your your economic policies, uh, and. And was that that was kind of a new concept? And what was the rationale for that, Ted? So
1: the rationale for that was that was basically the idea that if you had stable economic and financial conditions, that would contribute to having stable exchange rates. Uh, so there was a feedback on that to the system, and it also the rationale was that you in terms of the surveillance aspect it meant that, that you worried the fund was should not only just worry about what countries were doing in terms in the foreign exchange market but the underlying conditions that were leading to uh, the uh, pressures on the currency to appreciate or depreciate yeah. uh, so it created much more of a, a much broader structure to the to the international monetary system in some sense than existed to coming out of Bretton Woods, where you had some of these provisions in there but you didn't have the, quite the power of the uh, uh, power, is probably too strong a word but uh, authority, 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 right. authority the of the fund. the fund to to uh, to uh, 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 at least call out uh, countries for their, uh, their problems and their poli- exchange rate, yeah. uh, their economic policies as well as their exchange rate. Yeah, rates. I mean
0: under the under the old system, the the fund had the ability to. Um, to interact with countries on their domestic policies, but only in the context of their providing financing. So you have fund program conditionality, which often went to uh, domestic issues and, and fiscal, fiscal imbalances and all the rest, but if a country wasn't coming to borrow, uh, the fund really didn't have the authority to say anything, and that's quite a changed system today. So um, how did the new system really operate in the first decade or so, and then how did it evolve?
1: So um, initially, most countries' currencies were pegged to some other currency. Now that doesn't mean uh, that doesn't mean they were floating too. I think the analogy is to think about a bunch of ships, big ships in the ocean. Right, but there some of those big ships are have little ships attached to them, so they're more like flotillas. <laughs> but uh, uh, So the little ships are floating too, but along with the big ships. So everybody was floating in some sense. Uh, All countries were floating in some sense. Uh, And meanwhile, market forces in terms of international capital flows and so forth and so on, the scale of global financial markets were dramatically increasing. Uh, And you had a number of exchange rate and balance of payments uh, crises. a wise man once said, uh, "If an exchange rate has to change, it will change, and the speculators will help it change." <laughs> and, uh, and as you said, uh, the and in, in the, this context, the IMF developed a whole number of new set of broader kinds of lending instruments and, uh, and policies uh, on the lending side. At the same time, they were over, they were overseeing the system as a whole. The system. The system did not. It wasn't as if all of a sudden the system was you know, very stable. The exchange rate system was very stable. We had first of all, you had a lot of uh, uncertainties going on in that in that period with the uh, oil price increases and inflation increases and so forth and so on. Uh, and the dollar itself remained under pressure oh, throughout the nineteen seventies, uh, and there were further. Uh, Pressures in both directions are in 1980s. One of the more spectacular uh, occurrences where we, the United States, had to round up a whole big package where we drew on the fund, we sold SDRs, we sold gold, we uh, we committed that we changed our interest rate policy, uh, and we issued foreign currency-denominated debt. All of an idea idea was to stabilize the, the dollar. It was only partially successful in the sense that the dollar stopped going down, but it didn't stop start going up. And it wasn't until the 1980s that uh, the dollar started significantly appreciating, which it did. Uh, so that uh, these things kept kept going on, and uh, and they you know there were the, the, among the major currencies there were a lot of movements throughout the period, almost into, into the mid 1990s. Uh, and uh, at that point, the major currencies became uh, the, head, the issuers of the currencies currency became somewhat more relaxed, I guess you way would say. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and what we have today is there, you know, maybe 30 or so countries who are actually free flowers, meaning they only very occasionally move, uh, intervene in the exchange markets. One of the more complexities, uh, interesting complexities was the Euro came into existence, but it too became part of the system, so the number of currencies shrunk because it's shrinking every year as they add new, uh, new countries to the Eurozone. Yeah. And uh, and there were fewer hard pegs, and more countries managed their exchange rate. Not sometimes it was heavily more heavily managed than, than others. Sometimes they used rules. So the system as a whole became much more... Uh, flexible. Partly, that countries learned. Authorities learned uh, that the notion of defending your exchange rate until you have run out of reserves or something like that—it was a recipe for disaster. Because then you had a crisis, and the crisis was complicated. Uh, some people refer to this as confronting the uh, confronting the uh, uh, trilemma or the, the uh, uh, impossible trinity. Uh, which meant that countries couldn't have a fixed exchange rate, a their own monetary policy, and allow free capital flows all at the same time. You could only have two of those three. Uh, so you could have uh, fixed exchange rates and free capital flows, uh, but you couldn't run, your, couldn't run your own monetary
0: That's monitor. what we saw on the gold standard. You couldn't right. have to run your own <laughs>
1: monetary policy. Uh, and. And all this led to a number of uh, countries having crises. More sophisticated, uh, referred as, you know, this would be, say, you could, everybody faces this three objectives and they choose some combination of those objectives. Uh, so they're inside a triangle rather than on one side of a right, triangle.
0: Right. It's and usually international economic policy is more often a gray area than America, black and right, white.
1: Right, precisely. <laughs>
0: okay. Um, well this this was this is really a great walkthrough on how the system our current system was created and and how it it is generally operated and I thank you Ted, for this wonderful uh, what I thought was clear and interesting explanation. Um, some of my own memories uh, that you stirred up from this period included the the 1970s when, when I was involved in a couple of the um, balance of payments crises of other countries of Mexico in 76 and the United Kingdom that had a real mess in 76, and both of them needed big IMF programs, and the US and the Treasury and the Federal Reserve engaged in some bridge financing, some swap lines for them while those were put into place, and and then uh, the big package in the, uh, in the Carter administration, the borrowing to try to support the dollar. And, and what I learned from that was that it sure is nicer to be a creditor country than a debtor. <laughs> it's certainly less frightening. And, I, and, it, and it's just sort of served me well in life that I've learned it's better to be a creditor than a debtor. And so you want to try to live that way. Uh, the other interesting thing when I was working on these issues is there was, a, there was a seasoned bureaucrat at the Treasury who kind of gave me this view from 30,000 feet when he said... Well, you know the difference between fixed rates and floating rates is who pays and so in a sense i saw that when the u.s was out there doing all that borrowing in 78 uh and it was the u.s government that was that was paying to support the currency to the extent they were exchange losses opposed to gains on the on the exercise whereas with floating rates it's really the market participants who bear the 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 risks of exchange market fluctuations and and today, they, they cover those in various ways if they want to through swap lines or futures or other derivative instruments that give them kind of insurance that they pay for, for uh, to manage exchange risk. Well, this was, this was really terrific. And our future podcasts on the International and, uh, Financial and Monetary Systems Framework, I'm going to talk some more about the International Monetary Fund. We'll also be talking about the Bank for International Settlements, about the Financial Stability Board, and how all of these parts in the system relate to each other. Uh, next week, we're going to zero in on the IMF's role in resolving sovereign debt uh, crises and uh, and their engagement in sovereign debt restructuring with our guest, Charles Dallara. So please join us. We look forward to it.